From minimum wage to six-figure incomes, high school diplomas to PhDs, this podcast is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and this is Employed. In my experience, when you're really good with your hands, they tell you, oh, you should open an Etsy shop. They don't say you could be a neurosurgeon, right? People don't tell little girls who are making potions in the bathroom sink with hair products and playing with hair dye and acrylic nails. You could be a chemist. Thank you so much, Camille, for joining me tonight and coming onto the show to tell everyone what you do. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Camille. I'm a chemical engineer working in the oil and gas industry, and I live in Texas. So what made you interested in this field? Give us a little background. So as a kid, I was always pretty good at math, but I loved ballet and singing. And I told my parents I wanted to be a professional ballerina. And to their credit, they were always very supportive. But I feel like my dad kind of played the long game of saying, that's fine. I'll pay for all these really, you know, expensive costumes and recitals as long as you're always doing well in school and you're taking the hardest math class and the hardest science class that you're qualified for. So like in seventh grade, when I could pick pre-algebra or algebra or, you know, whatever honors something else, math, he was like, oh no, you're taking the algebra, right? So stuff like that, where they always made sure to challenge me academically. And I didn't decide to be a chemical engineer until I was the summer between junior and senior year of high school. So pretty late in the game compared to a lot of other folks who know what they want to be from the time they're really little. And what drew you to chemical engineering? What was it, what was it about it? So honestly, I had a really good chemistry teacher my junior year of high school who sent me to a class at the University of Utah, basically. Um, It was a a lecture class plus a kind of hands-on lab before and afterwards. So it was really a great intro to here's kind of what a chemistry degree would be like. And they also had a weekly seminar where they'd bring in people from different industries to say, here's where you would use chemistry in this job. So for example, they had someone from poison control come in and talk about how chemistry was so important when you could answer the phone and say, read me the label of what your kid ate so I can tell you what to do, right? Um, For the medical field, it's actually a great preparatory degree. Or in the case of chemical engineering, making things more efficiently, more cheaply, more economically. So at that point, that's what drew me into it. But I don't think I would have ever followed that path of even taking that chemistry course if my dad hadn't really pushed me. So my dad was an electrical engineer, you know, eventually went into business management, but he and my other uncle who were an engineer were pretty nerdy. And whenever I would visit my dad at work, he worked in an airbag factory. And so all of the women couldn't wear any jewelry. They worked on the plant floor. And I just thought, oh, I want to wear cute clothes. I don't want to do this job. So I had a very narrow view of what engineering meant. And I also think If I hadn't grown up with a parent who was an engineer, even that level of exposure is pretty rare for at least young women in the state where I grew up, right? In my experience, when you're really good with your hands, they tell you, oh, you should open an Etsy shop. They don't say you could be a neurosurgeon, right? People don't tell little girls who are making potions in the bathroom sink with hair products and playing with hair dye and acrylic nails. You could be a chemist. I personally think a lot of women who are great at coloring, great at teaching, all these other things could have been doctors, engineers, surgeons, but nobody ever encouraged that or planted that seed. And I think in my case, I had one parent who was always saying, 
you should really think about being an engineer because you would be good at it. And me always saying, ew, no. Until finally I found a degree in engineering that just seemed perfect for me, right? It's the chemical engineering, you to take a lot of chemistry. And for this lab class I took at the University of Utah, it was like, how many things can we make change color? And now knowing what I know about chemistry, that was a really expensive lab course. They let us play with really expensive metals because metals are the most fun. They change color. You add another metal and it completely changes color and texture. So really a great program for young people interested in chemistry. If you have a chance, I'm pretty sure they still do it. It's a summer series. But I'm just so grateful that my parents pushed me into engineering. And I, I really remember in middle school, I came home one day in junior high and we had taken a career aptitude test at school. And mine said I should be an administrative assistant or a teacher. And I came home and told my parents, I think I'd really like being a receptionist. And they said, really, why? And I said, because I could wear cute clothes and talk to people all day. And my dad said, oh, then you'd be a great engineer or a great doctor. So I don't know that everyone has parents that are so aggressively supportive and aspirational in what they think their children can achieve, but I'm really grateful for my parents. That is awesome. Thank you so much for that. And like we were talking about before the podcast, I'm so glad that you're on here and able to kind of share that piece um, because I think there are listeners out there that aren't quite getting that level of support and, and that push and that motivation. And so it's good to hear things like this. You talked a little bit about education and experience. So talk about your specific role. I mean, what kind of education is usually involved? Do you have to get certain licenses? Um, what is, you know, your, your training like? The great thing about chemical engineering is you really only need a four-year degree. You can get a four-year bachelor's degree and go out and work professionally in the median starting salary, depending on the year, right, in which industries are hiring more, is between seventy-five dollars and $85,000 starting salary out of college. I personally work in the oil and gas industry where the starting salary is a lot closer to $100,000. So depending on which industry you pick, and what cities you're willing to live in, right? How flexible you are about work-life balance. Mm -hmm. There's a broad spread of jobs, but I would say out of the friends that I went to undergrad with, about a third went and got jobs right away after undergrad. About a third of us went to grad school. I did a master's program. A lot of people did PhDs because they wanted to be professors, right? Sure. And then about a third of them went to medical school, actually, because chemical engineering has one of the highest rates for medical school acceptance. And you pick up all of the pre-med classes, except for the second semester of organic chemistry. So it's the only extra class you have to take. Otherwise, it's actually a pretty well-tailored pre-med degree that if you decide you don't want to be pre like actually go to medical school, you can go out and make a six-figure salary. I also wanted to add, so I did a master's degree that was fully funded, meaning I didn't have to pay tuition and I also got paid. So, I mean, I only got paid like, $2,500 a month, but that was enough to pay for my apartment and save a lot of money because I ate Hot Pockets and Clementines, like it was my job. So one big thing to point out, PhDs are always funded in chemical engineering and in most engineering disciplines and master's degrees, you can find funded ones. They're not always funded, but if you're willing to do research, you just kind of have to set up the fellowship yourself or apply for funding. So NSF, which is the National Science Foundation, right? There's a lot of foundations out there that sponsor graduate students and universities themselves sponsor all the grad students. So you should never have to pay for a PhD. 
And then one other thing I wanted to point out is the number of industries you can work in as a chemical engineer is huge. So literally any industry where you take things and you mix them together to make something uses chemical engineers. So food products, Procter & Gamble or Kimberly Clark, you know, deodorant, makeup, shampoo, so Lancome, oil and gas is where I work, pharmaceuticals, basically any plastic product that you use, any kind of injection molding, any sort of item that you buy at the store in a package, there's a chemical engineer somewhere behind that. And our job is to say, hey, scientists, you invented whatever the new scent is for deodorant, right? They invented that in the lab using 99% pure everything. And if you tried to make that commercially, it would be ridiculously expensive. It would also be really difficult to source the quantities that you would need for commercial manufacturing. So basically as a chemical engineer, a lot of your job is translating kind of a recipe into an industrial size recipe. So if you're good at cooking or you like mixing stuff together, or you know, you've noticed that you have like a cookie recipe that goes great in a single batch, but not a double batch, right? All those kinds of questions basically are what chemical engineers deal with all the time. Or you made this in the lab in something that was the size of, of a drinking glass, basically. And now I have to make it in a vat the size of my living room and make sure that everything gets mixed properly. And especially in the pharmaceutical industry, if you get pockets that don't get mixed well, you can end up with the totally wrong medication, right? So there's the whole science with reactor design and mixing and how quickly you cool things and in what order and all of this very detailed math and modeling. That's a whole discipline all on its own. And to be honest, when I was an undergrad, that's what I thought I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was so fun. But as I've gotten into it and I did that for a few years, I realized I really like being on more of the planning side, more of the management side, right? So there's definitely room even in your career to change your mind partway through. So when you want to go to the store to buy eggs, you expect the eggs to be there and to have been kept at the right temperature all the way through the supply chain. You drive to the store, the store has lights and heat and cooling. You drive home, your house has lights and heat and cooling. The stove works, right? You can turn on your microwave. And all the pieces of that sup supply chain from refrigeration technology and the energy used to keep everything at the right temperature, the commercial driving, fuel, right, the diesel-powered big rig trucks, transporting everything we buy at the stores, the car you drive, the electricity in your house, the electricity that's charging even electric cars or producing hydrogen or a lot of these other fuels that everyone talks about, the plastic in your shoes, right? Literally every piece of your life is supported by the oil and gas industry. And the more that I dug into it, that's super motivational for me. When I wake up every morning, if I don't do my job right, somebody is either going to have to overpay or not have the energy that they need today. Because the energy that we produce, the oil and gas, it goes into pipelines and it goes all over the country and all over the world. And that reliability of supply chain, reliability of processing is something that every American counts on, whether they realize it or want to realize it or not. And I also have friends that work actually, I mean, it's a lot less glamorous, but for sewer companies. So I have a friend that's from like middle of nowhere, Minnesota, and he wanted to go back home. And there was no industries there. It's a really small town. But he got a job at the sewer plant and he makes a great salary and supports his family, right? So there's so many industries that use chemical engineering that you really kind of get to pick if you want to prioritize, you know, work-life balance or specifically where you live, there's going to be an industry for that.
Oh, that's great to know. I had no idea. Thank you for sharing that piece. And so what are the demographics of your field? I mean, engineering, a lot of times we're still thinking it's pretty male dominated. What do you see in the chemical engineering side? So of all the engineering fields, chemical engineering has the largest proportion of women. It's still male dominated, I think on average in the country, but at the undergraduate level of all the degrees, it's the closest to gender parity. Wow. And I think part of that is kind of what I was talking about. Like I got into chemistry because of acrylic nails and hair dye, mm-hmm. honestly. Right. Like right. I thought that was so cool looking at how they did acrylic nails. And like, you take this powder, you add this liquid. It didn't even look like that color. And now right. it's that color when you mix other things in. Right. Um, so I think just the things that women are socialized to spend our time on mm-hmm. chemistry and biology tend to have more women in them than the other sciences versus uh, scientists having to do with like blowing things up or making things go fast tend to have more men in them. Sure. And I think a lot of that's kind of how we're socialized as children, right? Like you don't give little girls Hot Wheels car sets unless Mm -hmm. they have a bunch of brothers or cousins generally, right? Like you're giving them dolls and giving them nail polish. And so I think a lot of the industries that people end up in it's kind of funny how much of it depends on how you're socialized and what you're exposed to. But I personally uh, went to MIT and they admit a class that's very close to 50, 50. I think it's like 48, 52, something like that in terms of percent. So my chemical engineering class that I went through undergrad with was majority female. Thought of a class of 60, I think we had 15 guys and the rest were women. So I had a very different experience, I think, in undergrad than a lot of other people who felt that I've talked with, right? Other women that changed their major away from engineering because they were the only girl or specifically friends that went to very conservative schools and had a hard time finding other women who were into math and science and kind of felt that social pressure and changed majors or, you know, finished out the major, but went somewhere else for grad school. Right, so something else. Okay. Yeah. But working in the industry, at least the employer I work for, there's a lot of women who are engineers. I would say about somewhere between a quarter and a third of every department in the technical roles is women. And we have in the oil industry, we hire petroleum engineers, chemical engineers, mechanical, civil, environmental. We have a few nuclear engineers actually. And then we also have a few computer science folks, but they work more on the you know, data science, analytics, right. machine learning side. Sure. Okay. And so you talked about range of salary. Um, I want to add a little bit to that. Do you feel like this field allows you to meet your financial goals? Do you feel like you can support a family and save for retirement on your salary alone? Um, and then let's also talk about the health and life insurance. Let's talk about those fringe benefits. So yes, absolutely. This is really the reason I picked this degree was because my parents gave me a list of things and said, really do your research, but we think you'd be good at these things. And this one pays the most. So I I realized that's pretty materialistic, right? But like I said, starting salary in most fields for a chemical engineer is at least $70,000 a year. So looking at, I don't know if everyone does this when they're in high school, right? But looking at what life do you want? Do you want to have two kids, buy a house, be able to afford to go on a vacation every year? What kind of vacation? Oh, you want to go to Hawaii? for at least a week, that's something like seven grand, right? Like 
you have piano lessons, just so you know, like for you and your sister here, it's thousands of dollars a year that we spend on your piano lessons and dance lessons and school sports activities, like being able to afford to give you a car to drive when you're 16, helping you pay for college, right? These are all of the financial goals. And my parents are very transparent with me mm-hmm. of here is how much you cost as a one child, right. if we were to sustain the standard of living and just have one kid. And here's how much it costs with two kids. And we had three kids in my family, right? So here's how, how expensive you are. Mm-hmm. And so from that, I went into the career field thinking I need a job that makes at least $70,000 a year so I can sustain the lifestyle that I want, right? So I am well over that bar at this point, right? Like I've been in this career for close to 10 years now. Um, from the perspective of fringe benefits, 401k matching, we have stock purchase options where you can purchase discounted stock basically and sell it the next day, right? And make money or hold on to it. I do get paid in stock for a portion of my salary, which, I mean, you always hope the stock price increases. I kind of have a little bit of an unbalanced portfolio (laughs) compared to, you know, what's ideal because of that. Um, Since I'm waiting for some of that vested stock to recover in price before I sell it, or I got it really cheap. So I'm holding on to it. Basically, I don't follow the logic you should on selling your stock on time, but I also have excellent health insurance definitely a very subsidized and very generous insurance package. And then of course, are there opportunities for continuing growth for salary increases, improvement in this field? Yes, absolutely. So I think industry standard every year, you get a two and a half to 4% raise. Uh, Oil prices are a little bit volatile. So in years when oil prices are low, we might not get that full raise amount or might skip a year of raises, but they usually do try to make it up to us. The next year, um, I've worked for two different companies in this field specifically. One was a very large super major and the other is a smaller company. From my perspective, both had opportunities for growth and advancement, but in the larger company, it was a lot more structured. They had, you know, like a matrix that you could get as a new hire that said, if this is the career path you want, these are the six functions you need to have jobs in. And here are examples of people who have gone through those paths. Because when you have 80,000 employees, it's a pretty sure bet that something's gonna open up in that career path and they kind of have these set streams for people to move through. The employer I work for now is considerably smaller. They work to advance people's careers, but they're a lot less similar to each other. So compared to the job I did right out of my master's degree, where I kind of had a cohort of people that we moved through jobs kind of similarly together, I would say career paths diverge more quickly when you're in a small company, right? You can decide if you want to be somebody who's a technical expert who runs models in their office most of the time and gets called in for very technical answers. You can try to work closely with the field and with manufacturing and be very tight in, travel out to the field a lot, right? Spend a lot of time out there with the real operations of the company, which is where I focused, you know, the first half of my career. And then there's the management side where you're coordinating and setting the goals, the targets, figuring out, are we on track? Are we not? What do we need to change to get on track? What do we need to maybe fundamentally change in our industry? And I'm sure you all are probably aware, but the environmental component of oil and gas and carbon balance and 
how much do we push back on kind of some information that's maybe not telling the full story around renewable energy has issues too, right? Lithium ion batteries are actually very carbon intensive to make and also recycle. So, you know, there's that narrative. And then also the, this is where the investors are today. We got to meet them where they're at. And we also want to do what's right for the environment. So there's a lot of things we've historically already been doing that we're continuing to do and enhance and do better. So there's a lot in that space where I'm currently spending a lot of my time. And I'm currently in basically that management track. So I did a lot of project management roles and I'm currently working closely with one of the leaders of the company as their, we call it a business analyst role. Um, it functions kind of like a chief of staff, just doing a lot of kind of bird dogging, right? Whatever needs to get done, helping the strategic objectives get achieved. So at this point, my role is about influencing others without having any authority over them, okay. right? So we have our departmental objectives, but we can't achieve those without working with other departments. For leaders, right, you're never, once you get past that individual contributor level where you're in control of your world, you're going to be judged based on how well do you recognize and advance talent? How well are you connecting people and sharing information? How well are you articulating what needs to happen and getting it done? So essentially, if you want to work at an individual contributor level and just become a super skilled chief chief scientist type role, there definitely are career tracks available. However, I think you're most successful even in those roles when you can work really well with other people. In my experience, like I said, I wanted to be a receptionist because you could wear cute clothes and talk to people all day. Um, and my parents kind of streamlined that back into, let's find a career where you could support family, right? And use that skill set. I personally have honed a skill set of getting things done by getting people on the same page. And you can't do that without people knowing that you care about what's right for the company, that you're trying to make decisions based on what's best for the mutual benefit, and that you're looking past just my goals that are on my list for me to get promoted, right? So there's this kind of team mentality that's required and it takes a couple years for people to get to that level where they trust you and they will go out and network for you, right? So that's, in my opinion, the most important thing that you need to be successful as an engineer is for people to know you care about them. And what's really important to keep in mind is, especially with manufacturing, there's usually kind of two skill sets in the workplace. There are the, the technical people that they hired out of college to do, you know, office-based jobs that supervise operations. In general, the operators, they're the lifeblood of the company, but they've built their skill set through hands-on experience instead of formal education. So in a lot of ways, they have less flexibility because being a chief mechanic for a certain company in a certain plant isn't necessarily a credential that other people are going to recognize. And so they are very invested in their role, their skill set, their particular discipline, and in that company. And if they don't trust the management side of the company, I think 
at least in my experience, it's kind of common knowledge. There's this management versus union tension that happens all over the country. And where I work right now, our, our operators in the field, it's kind of a changing dynamic. A lot of those people nowadays do actually have college degrees, but maybe they were a math teacher making, you know, $40,000 a year. And they realized they could jump over to being an operator and make literally triple that overnight. Um, and so from that perspective, they often get treated in a way by the people on the office side as if they don't have college degrees, when in a lot of cases, they're very well educated. It's just they took a less conventional path knowing that this is what they wanted to do. So that, in my experience, is where if you are willing to just care about people, respect everybody, no matter how crazy the idea sounds, there's a good idea there. You got to figure out what piece of it is the good idea and how to help people feel like they're invested and that you're invested in their success. In my experience, that'll carry you a long way. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. What are your typical work hours? Is it challenging to balance the demands of work with your family life and how flexible is your work schedule? So generally my work hours are nine hours Monday through Thursday and then four hours on Fridays. That is a little bit unusual. Um, that's the employer that I work at now. But generally most engineers in my field work Monday through Friday, 40 hour work weeks. If you're a workaholic like me and you wanna get promoted quickly and you know, kind of just see what you're capable of and tackle everything you wanna tackle, you might be like me and work 60 hours a week, but that's a choice that I make and it's a choice that nobody else is pressuring me on except myself. And from the perspective of flexibility, generally, if you need to leave, you know, an hour early occasionally, or you're an hour late occasionally, nobody's clocking your time. But we do have meetings pretty standardly every morning at 730. For example, we have a meeting that everybody's expected to be on unless you're on vacation or, you know, something happens. So from my perspective, I usually get to work around like 727 to get on that 730 meeting. And then I work, depending on the day, um, I only have to work nine hours that day or nine hours on average, right? Monday through Thursday. So theoretically I could, I could leave at 430, but I work usually until about six o'clock or seven. And also one other thing, um, I do have some coworkers or a coworker in a prior job, for example, her kids got home from school at 330. So she would leave work at three, go home, be there with her kids and then get back on at night and do two more hours of work. And that was something she had worked out with her supervisor. And I think that's pretty common across the board in engineering, especially if your job is one of those jobs that's more behind the scenes, more about building and driving models, right? As long as you're there for the meetings you need to be there for, if there's something unique in your life going on, they're happy to work with you. And for example, I'm doing my MBA right now on weekends. So I'm not at the office every other Friday. And they're not making me take vacation for that. They trust that I'm working the hours I need to and I'm getting the work done that I need to. And occasionally I have to step out of class and be on a meeting, but they provide a great deal of flexibility. Okay, so walk me through an average day at your job from the time that you arrive to the time you leave. So generally I have, in whatever job I'm in, I've always been supporting operations. So generally in the morning, the first thing I do is I start making phone calls and checking my emails, making sure that nothing needs immediate intervention. I used to be a construction project manager and then a project manager for a pretty big strategic project. So generally, if anything happened, people are gonna email about it around 5 a.m. Um, so around 6 a.m. as I'm getting ready, 
I just quickly skim my emails. And if anything big popped up, I start making phone calls. Otherwise, I go into the office, get there around 7.20, 7.30, go to my 7.30 meeting, which is one of the only kind of fixed meetings that happens every day. And then I either have meetings or mentoring sessions or work sessions. We're usually driving projects to completion, helping mentor specific skill sets, you know, helping guide newer career employees through whatever objectives we're trying to help them develop. So for example, there's one employee I've been working with who we're trying to build up her confidence in leading meetings. So I've been having her lead a lot of strategic meetings for me, right? And be the one driving that meeting, but I'm there to support her if anything starts to go off the rails or other groups are being confrontational, being supportive and kind of being there to back her up, but letting her be the one that drives that meeting. So I spend a lot of time basically supporting my team during the day. And then the reason I stay late is usually I haven't had a chance to dig through my email and that's my chance to really just crank things out anything that's uninterrupted work that really needs focus. I do that after everyone else leaves the office around four. Okay. What's the best day that you've had at your job or what's a day that stands out in a positive way? I have a lot of good days in general. The more I feel like I got to help people, the better I feel like the day was just thinking back over the last month. I think it's always fun when you get to a big milestone, right? So I had kind of mentored one of the people in our team through a project. And it was time to present that project to, we work directly with a VP, but to, you know, his boss, the executive vice president. And once they saw the quality of the presentation we had put together, they said, you know, we need to get our COO on this call. He went and got the head of our, you know, other division. And they decided that they were going to last minute invite the CEO, right? So that was so encouraging, not only for me, but for this team and this person that I had mentored through developing kind of this project conclusion presentation that we produced something that was high quality enough that our boss was confident in the last literally four hours before the presentation saying, sure, let's invite the CEO and just came by and told us, you know, yeah, he's going to be in there. So just that level of accomplishment and seeing other people feel that encouragement for me was so fun. Uh, We also have days that are often difficult because we're working through differences of opinion, often with, you know, outside vendors. So we always want the lowest price. They always need to make a profit. There's always going to be some tension there, but anytime that we can resolve a longstanding issue to mutual satisfaction and negotiate that to conclusion in a way that's mutually beneficial, those are also really good days. So a lot of days when I can kind of look at the end of the day and say, look at everything we got done today and kind of pitch it back to the team and say, look at what we got done. Look at what you did and show people their piece of that accomplishment, right? And come back and say, did you see that press release? Here's how you contributed. Here's the numbers behind the work you've been doing for the last few months. And just trying to kind of share that credit. Whenever we have those really tangible points, it makes that a lot easier to help energize the team. So that's what I would say are my favorite days. Cool. Great. Thank you. And you touched a little bit on a challenge that you, you know, you face at work. Um, you know, what does a bad day at work look like? And are there current issues or trends in the field that others should be aware of? For me, there's a level of honestly sexism in the oil field. People are still not used to the person in charge being a woman. And there's always a little bit of tension there. In my experience, you're kind of in the hot seat for about a week 
or a month, depending on how closely you're working with that team. But as soon as you kind of prove yourself, everything goes smoothly. I get frustrated when I have teams that I've been working with closely and I've proved myself. And then I see someone come behind me in that role who's male and not have any of those struggles. For me, that's really still one of my pain points. I don't know that that's something that's going to go away overnight. And I do think this is an industry where, you know, absolutely there's a line which you never allow people to cross around sexual harassment or intimidation or discrimination in hiring or promotions. There is, however, a level of, you know, I work in Texas. This is the South. People are going to say ma'am because it's how they were raised, that that's how you talk to a lady, right? If a lady walks in the room, everybody stops swearing. So there's still things where people are going to treat you differently. They're going to hold the door open for you. If they don't know your name, they might say young lady instead of ma'am when they ask you your name, right? So there's things that you just, in my opinion, cannot take personally. And you have to take the culture of the South and the the mannerisms that they've been raised with is this is how you be polite and they are on their best behavior and they are never trying to make you feel like you don't belong. But that moment of seeing that they treat you differently for me is really difficult to not get my hackles up and not get offended. And it's something that once I've worked with someone closely enough, I'll mention to them and I've watched them change their behavior with some of the women who come behind me in those roles. So that's, that's encouraging. But honestly, that's the one piece that there are days that I go home and think, oh, I didn't expect that person to do that, right? And so that's, I think, the piece where, where I still have hard days. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that and being transparent about that. I think that's important for a lot of people to know. And I'm finding that, you know, the majority of listeners are women. Thank you for sharing that piece. What other related fields should others look into if this career, you know, piques a little bit of interest? Honestly, any manufacturing industry and any engineering degree, I think these are common themes, whether you do, you know, computer science or computer engineering, and you want to go work for Facebook or Google, or, you know, you want to be a biomedical engineer and create prosthetic limbs, or I have former classmates who worked on the coronavirus vaccine, whatever it is that you can think of that would change the world or support whatever objectives and goals you have. If any piece of that is tied to a chemical process or science or math in any way, engineering really is, in my opinion, the fastest way to make an impact, get a great salary, have a great work-life balance, and get to work with all sorts of people all over the world. And what is your end goal in this career path? Where do you hope to be by the end of your career? Honestly, I'm aiming for the C-suite, right? Like I want to be one of the people running the company. And I'm really grateful that I was able to find a company that I feel that way about. The company that I'm at now compared to the one I started in after my master's degree treats people like people. And that's so important. You can't treat people like numbers. We had to do layoffs during COVID. And a few years prior to that, they did a major resizing and selling off of a few divisions. So having two layoffs within two years was really difficult for morale. But one thing that I think they did right is they gave everyone a year's salary as their severance payment. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty confident I could find a job within a year. That's 
in my opinion, very generous, right? So from the perspective of having actually employees volunteer for the package, those kinds of incentives really go a long way to helping the morale of the people that are still there when the layoff is over, right? So from my perspective, even when the company has to make hard decisions like pivoting and saying, we're no longer a growth company, so we can't have a headcount like we're a growth company, we're a value stock. And that means we can't support this level of expense, trying to treat people the way that they would truly want to be treated. And I don't think that that's always consistent across senior management. You know, you hear these crazy stories in the news and I can honestly say that every one of the senior management at my current employer is really trying to do the right thing. They're all very family oriented, very respectful of their employees weekends. They try not to call you late at night or on weekends if it can wait till the next day or wait for the next week. And just that level of respect for their employees it's something that I have not personally experienced to this level at any other employer. So I'm planning to stick around for a long time as long as they keep me around. Awesome. Thank you. That's that's rare. I, I don't feel like that, you know, when I'm talking and networking with with other professionals my age, um, you know, that's something that you hear too often. So thank you for sharing that. That's great. You're in a good position. And what advice? specifically for women, do you have wanting to enter this career field? I would say that as women, we have so many studies that tell us we don't apply for jobs unless we check every single box. And I think that's something that we need to be willing to take that risk and say, maybe I'm not the biggest math genius in the world, right? Like my older sister is a lot better at math than I am, but I'm pretty good. And I know I can figure stuff out. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to see if I make it in an engineering degree and I'm going to just do everything I can, right? You get your first grade. That's not amazing. Do you drop the class? Do you go to tutoring sessions? Right? How do you work through those things? And I think as women, we often think if you don't succeed, it means you're not good at it. Like if you don't immediately understand something, you're not good at that subject. And I think that's something that holds a lot of us back from even in my career now, right? There's positions that later people have come to me and said, why didn't you apply for that? We had you on the short list and you never submitted an application. And I said, oh, I read the job description and I didn't have this thing. And they were like, well, we didn't want everything on there. We just put everything on there. So everyone would see something they thought they were good at. So it's really interesting, even when people write job descriptions or you know, tell you what the prerequisites are for a graduate program or tell you what you need to already know before you arrive at college to do that degree. If you're missing 20% of that list or even 40% of that list, you're just as qualified as all the men that are applying. And it's something with the psychology of how we're socialized that men take more risks. They're willing to say, oh, I'll figure it out when I get there. Sure, I can do that. And I think that's something that I still even do, and I've gotten coaching lately that I'm that I need to be less conservative in what I put myself out for. Don't only say yes to the things that I know I can do well. Take some risks. Do things that you think you have a 50-50 shot at succeeding because you're going to put in the extra effort that tips those odds and helps you get it done. So that's something that, I mean, I'm kind of even giving myself a pep talk here, right? But like something that I'm working on, and I think we as women need to realize And I actually have friends reach out to me who were doing the same major at other schools and say, I think I need to switch my major because I feel like I don't understand everything. I feel like I'm barely surviving. I feel like I'm only understanding half of the stuff and regurgitating it on the test. And 
I don't think I understand this topic. I, I think I need to do something different. And I told him, no, no, I felt exactly the same way. That's normal. But the guys just have this weird ego thing where they pretend they understand it and they try to make each other think that they all like, they all put on this ego act and we don't all do that as women. And so if you're in an engineering degree and you're looking around and thinking, I must be stupid because I'm the only one talking about how I don't understand, you're not the only one that doesn't understand. You're just the only one raising your hand and asking questions. And that's what you should be doing if you don't understand. You should be going to tutoring sessions and asking for help and talking with the professor after class and saying, this piece, I got confused. Cause you know what? I had a lecture where I sat the whole time being confused and I went up and talked to the professor after and he had made a math mistake, right? Or other times where they said, oh, I just divided by two and subtracted this thing over here. And it's like, oh, thank you, right? But sometimes it's unfortunate, but we psych ourselves up and think, I can't do this when you can. You can do whatever you wanna do. You just gotta figure out what the support network is that you need to get you there. If you are in high school and you're trying to think about what you want to do for your college degree, or even if you're in college and trying to decide, you know, I, I want to change my major, what should I do? Look at the starting salaries. There's the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, right? There's all these different reports that they publish and they tell you the median salary, which means half the people make more, half the people make less. They also publish the average. And you can look at what do different degrees make. And for example, my husband studied chemistry in college. If you look at the math on that, you have to get a PhD to make the same salary you would as a chemical engineer with only four years of school. So if you're good at two or three things, look at what they earn. And that doesn't mean you're being materialistic or shallow. It means you're being realistic. And personally, in my experience, having a job that pays me really well gives me time and lets me be secure and confident. That gives me the energy to then go home and you know, have all my other hobbies. And I'm so grateful that my parents asked me those hard questions when I was in high school of, you know, why would you pick that major? Okay, we, we know you're good at singing, but if you're a vocal performance major, let's look at the math. It's going to be really hard to support yourself on that, especially if you want to live in a bigger city, right? So thinking through what's the life you want, what careers could get you there and go big or go home, right? If you're good at medical stuff and you're debating, should you do nursing or be a doctor, go for it, apply for both, right? See what you get into, take the MCAT, apply for med school. Don't psych yourself out and not apply for things because you lose 100% of the shots you don't take. A big thank you to Camille for donating her time to the show, as well as all of the employed guests who participated this year. Stay tuned for the release date of new episodes beginning in 2022. Have a great holiday season and thanks for listening.